10. Work. Having made the grade on my test of physical endurance, I felt compelled to focus more on my work, since the nine months of training did stretch my dedication to the corporation that employs and pays me. I have long enjoyed the products and culture of the company, often being a cheerleader and one who drinks the Kool-Aid and is a good soldier of the rank and file. The willingness to put in long hours or do extra on the weekend came naturally since the game of global competition ensured that there are the quick and the dead when it comes to the modern market, especially in the technology arena. Now with that declaration of my work ethic. I also enjoy slacking off at work and I burn out frequently. But I like to speak of my undying work, work ethic to feel like a good American since we tend to equate work with a person's value. My own father imbued a strong sense of work for work's sake in his children, as did his father before him. Work defined a person's character and worth. A lazy person was a worthless thing. Money was fine, but to be known as a hard worker garnered more respect and honor. You'll notice that I sometimes desire honor over otherworldly things, and that is, in part, my own vanity. However, I've noticed that change over the past 30 years in America, where money has come to be viewed as a measurement of a person's goodness, more so than the work he or she does. This placement of money over character or honor has surely been around forever, but I have observed a change in opinion surrounding these things just among the people in my circle of life. Surely, by now, a clear psychological profile could be pulled from these writings, and I'm aware that various notions of my goal-seeking and work aggrandizement and all the other things you may have seen for approval-seeking, I have certain damaged notions to various degrees. And I know some strange ideas of morality hover over me, and I have confusion in my own thoughts and words. I'm aware of it. However... In a place of hard winters and farm life, I believe this culture against sloth took form out of necessity, since lack of preparation and unwillingness to complete tasks resulted in disaster. A work-oriented lifestyle made sense until the hard winter problem was solved with forced air furnaces, gas fireplaces, and whole house humidifiers. The chores of farm life no longer apply to most people because there are few farms left today. Larger factory farms is all that is left, really, which employ uh, low-paid immigrant labor, and large farm families no longer make sense given the costs of raising children. Those of us that left these millions of defunct small farms found work in cities, as we have since the beginning of the Industrial Revolution. Part of the restlessness of myself seems to be an American problem at large, since when I lived in Europe, the locals complained that we Americans did not know how to have lunch. True enough, even today, I often eat lunch at my desk, not wanting to waste time to waste time on a meal. The sense of business and needing to do something all the time emanated from these old values toward work, but modern technology seems to have increased our fear of missing out. In fact, farm people did stop for lunch and took afternoon breaks, and in the evening found time to be still. Well, time is money, 
And we, we want not only to be successful in money, but also experience everything. Most interesting is that in our drive for efficiency and everything, we forget how to relax to the point that the work itself becomes a hamster wheel that we actually want to spin upon. I have often confused sitting at a computer with being the equivalent of being productive, when most of the time I could shut the laptop and get the same amount of work done. Even when not working, I rush about experiencing everything that I can squeeze into the hours to feed my senses of touching and tasting and seeing and hearing and doing. Leisure becomes like work when we're chasing experiences. The intangible work that I do with software causes an internal struggle in me since I have nothing to show for my many years of work. Being someone who apparently needs feedback and approval, a sense of honor, this ethereal production of code never felt meaningful. I was urged into the technical fields in order to make money so that I could live a quote, good life. The pairing of money and goodness did not match the teachings of my youth or my instincts, particularly in church, but the message of what mattered in this worldly life became clear, as perhaps it did to so many in the 80s when greed accelerated as an American virtue. Think of Gordon Gecko and greed is good. Simultaneously, we were taught the fear of retiring in poverty, as we had to, quote, pack our own parachute lest we strike the ground at retirement at the terminal velocity of poorness. Greed and fear are twins that grow together. I've slowly begun to realize this. With the sedentary nature of my work, I missed the physical labor and blood flow of life that I saw in the farms of my youth. I spent so many years turning to drinking instead of exercise to get my mood lift for the day, which is of course a false lift, since drinking takes you up a ladder to nowhere with the buzz, and at night during sleep you slide down a bit further to a lower point on the ladder for the next day. There had been efforts that I had made toward exercise, but nothing sustained until I finally quit drinking, and then, as I've covered in too much detail already, the obsession to exercise, the ex exercising had replaced the drinking, and it did give me a proper lift of spirit. However, and it allowed me to look past the empty feeling that software and IT work delivered because I was moving, I was physically doing something. For the case study on how the IT world feels to me, just go watch the movie Office Space. Over the years of work, I've had periods of dedication and burnout, like a cycle of its own. The weekly sprints and quarterly releases of software tend toward frantic states of activity and then in between, there are many break-fix troubleshooting days that can extend late into the evenings. Solving little problems keeps work interesting. And in another path of life, I might have been an appliance repairman or a mechanic and enjoyed that. Much of my work has been in troubleshooting, and I've developed a knack for finding the source of problems and making corrections or suggestions. I realize that all work becomes monotonous and can feel soul-crushing if a person allows it to. I had allowed my own soul crush to happen. Really, I chose that option. In an earlier post, I mentioned that career lived at the bottom of my list of priorities, but at times it was at the top. 
Like so many others today in the corporate world, I found meaning in my work, even my identity, and I reveled in my commitment. Just like my one night in jail, I felt often superior to my coworkers, like my inmates in jail. Why? Well, because I thought of myself as a producer, not a feeder. In fact, I could have been Shylock from The Merchant of Venice as I spoke about co-workers in the same manner that he spoke of people. And here's a quote from the play. A huge feeder, snail slow in profit, and he sleeps by day more than a wildcat. Drones hive not with me, and therefore I part with him. Unquote. So much for being a team player. I disdained the worthless, but still enjoyed the praise when I completed a task or showed the way. Interestingly, I enjoyed working with first or second generation immigrants to America most of all because I found them usually hungry to make their mark, which meant working hard, working extra, and going to great lengths to complete their tasks. I judged my fellow extended stay third, fourth generation Americans as more lazy since they often checked out at five o'clock and worked a mere 40 hour week. Given this observation, I understood why IT jobs were fleeing to offshore hubs, as I was basically blaming Americans for not working hard enough. Truth be told, I had periods of time where I did little, often after I built up a lot of reputation capital for some fix or solution that earned me a lot of backslaps and attention. In reality, I played the, quote, feeder, when I could because I wanted, I wanted to pursue my own side projects and goals, which included running, biking, and swimming. During my training, I would sneak away from work and cancel dubious meetings in order to exercise. Upon completion of the Ironman, I threw myself into work again as I could finally back off from training. The product, the glorious product, needed to be better, and I would be its champion in the company. As for why it needed to be better, I didn't care so much about market share or money. I just didn't like the overall quality, and every bug I filed or fixed caused a mini embolism in my head. When I focused on the product, I became agitated. In fact, the product often irritated me, just like other things irritated me. It had to be better. It had to be improving at all times. In fact, so many things irritated me, but probably nothing more irritated me so much as my phone. My phone irritated me. The news on the phone irritated me. Facebook irritated me. YouTube comments definitely irritated me. And basically even the word Twitter irritates me. Still irritates me. And even LinkedIn had a similar effect of, what should we call it, irritation. I was always irritated about something in the online domain. Unless I was exercising or hanging out with my family, I was probably irritated. I felt bothered and bitter much of the time, and it tied directly back to the wonders of software and the internet. Oh, on the exterior, I held it together and showed the happy face, the peaceful and calm dude at your command delivering that white glove service. In fact, my favorite movie was always The Big Lebowski, and I liked how lazy he was. But as I would like to have imagined, I had some dude-ish qualities. I really didn't. 
I realized that I hadn't been to any AA meetings for quite some time, and according to AA, that meant I had been white-knuckling my sobriety, a term I, I disliked since I felt that they used it to impress people back into AA service. But this term really fit my state. I had been gripping things too hard, like exercise and goals and work, all, using those things as my guide for life. Even if I did occasionally pray for help, strength, and direction, I usually did so semi-seriously as my limited faith had already slipped. I was still at the point of acceptance of a higher power that had stuck. I was much further along than the streetlight God that I started with, but I still was occasionally blocked. The great scissors of the serenity prayer for cutting through life's irritations I had forgotten that, and I wasn't saying it anymore. The restless spirit lived on, and a hungry heart gnawed at me. Approaching and passing four years of sobriety, I knew that I could never go back to drinking because I'd wasted too many years in that morass already. One day, I checked on my savings and 401k and realized how much I had saved. My retirement nest egg was incubating nicely. I realized I had everything, everything this world has to offer. I had experienced or obtained it. And still, the restlessness and wandering mind scanned for something more or new or different. There was literally nothing more in the world that I wanted than what I already had. I had a family. I had a high-paying job. I had healthy children. I had a fine house, two reliable cars, respect from my peers, friends and neighbors that I enjoyed, an excess of energy from exercise, and I had my own health. I lived near my parents and extended family, and I was able to see them often, to be there in the capacity of a son, nephew, cousin, grandchild, whenever needed. Even the volunteer coaching I kind of, sort of enjoyed. Still, and still, I felt unhappy much of the time. I realized that the meritocracy of my worldview didn't really work in the long run. I had scribbled down a quote from an author named Chris Stefanik since it related to me. Quote, Life is more than comfort. Life is more than a list of accomplishments and activities. While such a list might help you fill out a college or a job application, it does not fill up your heart the obvious truth became apparent, that I could not find fulfillment in materialism, or mindfulness, or knowledge, or even charity work and volunteering. The journey was leading me to one place, and that was back to where I had started when I quit drinking, to God. The funny part is that, that this was my hidden fear, that with all my swagger, an anti-God talk for years, that instead of everyone else looking like hypocrites, I was the hypocrite. I had become the cliché, leaning back into faith after trying everything else in life. If only there were a word for that, like a parable or something, for a prodigal that strays and goes wild for years, only re to return home in supplication and in need of forgiveness. Ah, I don't know, maybe there's some story out there. Around this time, I felt the urge to return to church, and I tried a different evangelical church, but again, it 
wasn't right for me, just as AA was not quite right for me. Then one of my children asked to be baptized Catholic because we had not baptized them, having been nuns and raising them as unaffiliated, non-religious, just like we were. And we talked about it and we said yes. And it was then that I started to rediscover and realize just how little I actually knew about the Catholic Church, despite many years of growing up in the faith. I started listening to and reading books from Word on Fire, after a tip from a friend. There was a voice in Bishop Robert Barron that I had never heard nor expected to come from a priest, as I had written off the church some time ago. But he cut through the AM radio noise and the YouTube sowers of discord and the crazy attention seekers to get to the heart of what it what a Christian is and what was the message of love one another and the deep underlying intellectual tradition that the foundation of the catechism of the church had been built upon. I had missed the whole point, or rather, I never really took the time to see the point while I was chasing down every goal and freedom that I could find. So what did I do? Well, I immediately quit Facebook to remove that poison from my life as the election nonsense and partisanship was going wild in the Trump era. I realized that I had nothing to lose in returning to the faith with my child, who led me back through her baptism. And I had nothing to fear, just as Bishop Barron asked in a commentary in a series of questions, and he said, What are you afraid of? What do you have to lose? Does it terrify you to think that you might lose your wealth, your social status, the affection of others, your health, your power or influence, your reputation and good name, your life? If you've heard me in all the other prior episodes, you'll know the answer to all of these is was yes. I was afraid of all of that. I wanted approval for all those things. I wanted my job to elevate me. I wanted everyone to approve of me. So in all my pursuit of knowledge, I had overlooked so many books. And I had, I had conflated certain Christians to mean all Christians. Well, in the airport on a work trip, I picked up a book by Timothy Keller called The Reason for God. I don't know why. I, I went into the bookstore and I, I looked around for a book and I saw that one and I decided to buy it. When I bought the book, even when I picked it up, I looked over my shoulder to make sure no one was watching me, feeling like I had betrayed the, the nuns and the unaffiliated and the atheists and agnostic. I couldn't believe I was walking around holding a book called The Reason for God in a bookstore, in the airport, in public. It was, it was embarrassing, or I was not ready to let people see me with this book. The young cashier, he looked at me with disdain, and I saw a reflection of my younger self in his expression. Right before I had come up with the book, the cashier and another person had been talking about religious people in a negative way, which I would have joined right in not very long ago. Apparently, I had waited so long to buy a book about God or with God in the title that it had become a kind of 
countercultural punk rock thing to do. Well, I really enjoyed that book, and I did not read it on the airplane because I didn't want people to see me holding up the book. I was not ready to be outed as like someone with faith. And not long after that, I picked up a book called The Catechism of the Catholic Church from a Barnes and Noble. And at that point, I realized, just in reading the first 10 pages, that I didn't know jack squat about Catholicism. I had a lot of work to do to catch up. 